Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. You are listening to Gary Howard, Europe Editor at Sea Trade Maritime News. Today we are in conversation with Harry Theocharry, Chairman of Maritime London and Senior Consultant at Norton Rose Fulbright. A warm welcome to Harry. During our conversation, we will hear Harry's views on financing the maritime and shipping sectors through the revolutionary period of decarbonisation and disruptive technologies, and the work the UK must undertake to secure its future as a leading maritime nation. Hello, Harry, and welcome to the podcast. Many of our listeners might already know you as a a high-profile lawyer in the maritime space in London. I think we all know there's quite a few big challenges facing the industry at the moment, and how maritime London is working to help deal with those challenges? Our CEO, Josh Sandwick, who works exceptionally hard for Maritime London, has been a co-chair on the government's Maritime Financial Products Working Group. Now, this is a group that was established by government to focus on how we can give UK owners and operators incentives to invest in low carbon technology. And, you know, perhaps we will can come back to this in our, our discussions down the line. We've been working very closely with the DIT's Maritime Campaigns and Capability Office in relation to the launch of what's going to be known as the Shipping Concierge. Now, this is something that we're particularly excited about, both at uh, Maritime London and Maritime UK, because you know one of the great efforts that this new organisation is going to put in is to attract owners to British flag. I don't need to tell you, Gary, that British flag has suffered dreadfully. I mean, just to give you an example, when I started my career, in the 1980s, and that's a rather long time ago, but there were more than 1,500 vessels on British flag. Just before Brexit, we hit a low of just over 400, and following Brexit, it's continued to fall. So we do need to make a concerted effort to rebuild the flag. We're very proud to work with Nautilus International. They're an organization with which we have a close cooperation and we try and work with them and support the sea to city scheme. This is really designed to give seafarers employment opportunities in the city. Now, if I may say from a personal point of view, Gary, if there are any seafarers that may listen to this podcast, can I say to them, if you're thinking about a possible second career when you come ashore, irrespective of whether you're Royal Navy or Merchant Marine, legally qualified seafarers are like gold dust right now, but they're rare as hen's teeth. So please do give some thought to this particular area. I'm sure you'll find huge opportunities and you'll be terribly welcome. Another area where we at Maritime London are very active is we provide the secretariat on a pro bono basis for the Maritime London Officer Cadet Scholarship Programme. Here we work to support young people through their seafarer training. Now, once again, this is particularly important, Gary, because the number of UK seafarers has fallen by over 30% since the 1980s. And if we're going to have a meaningful shipping and maritime industry, seafarers are going to be key to the future success. So we do need to concentrate on training more seafarers. I mean, look, it's a much deeper problem than just training seafarers, but we're helping to ease some of the issues. My concern is that if you look at some of the statements that have been made by Nautilus International recently, that 30% drop from the 1980s to today is likely to suffer another 30% drop in the future simply because of the age profile of many of those in the industry. So it's something that we consider to be very valuable and something that we should focus on. 
especially as an island nation, it seems to <laughs> it seems to make a lot um, of sense to have plenty well, of seats there. Well, Gary, it's something I continually bang on about. In a strange sort of way, I very much hope that our recent experiences with Brexit and with COVID have shown the person on the street how fundamentally important the shipping and maritime industries are to the commercial lifeblood of this nation. There are huge security issues in not having a strong maritime industry. You know, we're a nation that imports and exports, you know, 95% of all our goods. You know, we have a huge trade that is totally reliant on shipping. 48% of our fuel and energy needs are imported. So shipping is fundamentally important, Gary. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important that you know, we don't lose sight of this and that we do all that we can to work with government to make sure that we somehow reinvigorate the industry. I mean, I, you know, we have some ideas which we will be pursuing and maybe we can touch upon these a little later. But finally, in relation to the things they're doing and something that we're very proud of, Gary, is our work with Maritime UK, which, as I said earlier, is uh, the umbrella organisation for the UK's maritime industries, and particularly in endorsing and supporting the great work that they do on diversity in maritime and the Maritime Skills Commission. These are two programmes that I'm very pleased to say were established whilst I was chairman of MUK. They're things that we at Maritime London are absolutely intent and focus on supporting and working with MUK to make as successful as possible. A good thing to update on, especially given how much has changed recently with COVID and everything else. I expect that's been felt in the city. And how much have things changed up in London compared to pre, pre-March 2020? From a personal point of view, I find it very, very sad to walk into my offices that hold up to uh, 2,000 people who used to be there most days of the week pre-pandemic and to count no more than a handful or perhaps no more than 20, including all the security guards and car park attendants. But look, the fact of the matter is, you know, the pandemic is something that we've had to learn to live with. We've had to learn to work from home. And I think the great news is that you know a lot of people, and I, I think the vast majority from what I understand, do benefit and enjoy working from home. And certainly my firm, Norton Rose Fulbright, has had a a very good experience when it comes to our staff working from home, the productivity of those staff and the benefit that they seem to get from it in that they seem to be much happier and they seem to be enjoying life a lot more. And I I think there's a lot to be said for that. So hopefully we'll we'll have learned a little bit from the pandemic and perhaps we can improve the way that we work and how we work. Yes, and I think those times that we do manage to work and and socialise together in the city will be that much better for all the time we've spent at home as well. Look, I, I'm no longer a partner of the firm, but you know I'm pretty pretty much pushing to ensure that people do get into the office for at least three days a week, if at all possible. I think social interaction is very important. I think particularly for for the younger members of staff who perhaps don't live in quite a salubrious way as as some of us who are older and who have nicer homes and who do have an office and who are able to work easily from home, they do value going in and meeting their friends and going out afterwards. And we don't want to lose that. I think it's important that you don't lose the culture that you develop. And I think that's the same for the whole of the city. We have a great culture and it's something that we must try to maintain. And I really don't believe you can do that without people contacting. Completely agree, especially as uh, C-Trade hosts so many events around the world. We like to see people face to face. 
I think that's very important. And I, I do hope we do get back to having more events. It's very important for the industry to get together, to share ideas, really to try and understand some of the issues that we're facing on a global basis. It's so much easier to do that speaking face to face. I think you get a much better understanding of what the issues may be. It certainly helps visiting different places. I haven't actually traveled anywhere in the last 18 months. And I really miss that mm. because, you know, it's it, it's it's one thing for people to tell you what's going on. It's another thing to actually turn up and see for yourself and experience some of the issues that are being faced and what steps are being taken to alleviate those issues. I think one can learn a lot from others. And that's something that I fear I'm certainly missing from a personal perspective. And I, I very much hope we get a return to traveling shortly. I know I don't think we'll need as much traveling. I think we've all worked very hard to get the best out of Zoom and Teams and uh, all these other remote ways of working with each other. But I still think uh, uh, some travel will be necessary, Gary. I completely agree. And on a personal note, it was great to attend London International Shipping Week last year, which I think was the first event that I went to after the, the first major lockdown we had here in the UK at the IMO headquarters in London. And it was great to see everyone and really discuss all of the issues that we have facing the industry. I mean, we've talked about how it's affected us as office workers, but the effect on seafarers has been that much more dramatic. You mentioned earlier about the need to increase the number of seafarers we have in the UK and attract them to second careers after their career at sea. I think perhaps the pandemic has helped to focus a lot of energy in that area as we focus on things like seafarer mental health and their their access to to technology and communication so they can they can be there with their families uh, remotely is that something that you, you will, you're helping to work with at maritime london well look certainly maritime london would fully concur with what you say and we work very closely through maritime uk uh, i say maritime uk is the one voice of our industry and, you know, it's it's the body that we go through to government with. And, you know, we have been making it abundantly clear through Maritime UK that we believe seafarers have been treated abominably. These are, are, are people, human beings that we rely on to keep world trade going, to supply us with the food that we need, the, the fuel that we uh, we consume. It's fundamentally important that they should be respected and looked after. And I'm afraid it really hasn't been happening. I mean, certainly the, the United Kingdom tried to do its best. It, it got together a group of maritime nations with assistance from, from MUK and uh, from the International Chamber of Shipping, who have done a marvellous job again there, the International Chamber of Shipping, but tried to get nations together so that you know we have some kind of resolve and activity to make sure that, that these people are looked after, the crew changes are permitted, uh, that people understand the issues that they're facing and to try and help with some of the huge problems of people who've been stuck on board vessels for months at a time, Gary. Yeah. And how do you think this might affect the number of seafarers that we have here in the UK? Because you've mentioned already that there's been a, a big drop and, and likely there'll be a further drop due to, to Brexit and everything else going on. We've had a real public focus on the supply chain in the past couple of years starting perhaps with Ever Given, and then we have our ongoing supply chain issues in the container trade. With so much attention on the supply chain and on seafarers, is there an opportunity there to sort of improve how attractive the industry is to newcomers? Well, look, you hit upon a very interesting point there, Gary, and this is something that Maritime London has been working very hard to 
develop a position upon. If I may just take it a little bit wider, following a number of discussions and exchanges, we at Maritime London have come to the conclusion that shipping is such an important industry to the commercial and social lifeblood of this nation that it needs its own minister. It needs a standalone minister, someone that the industry can speak to, someone that the industry can coordinate with, someone that understands what the international issues are and how the United Kingdom can best deal with them to make sure that we keep our still leading position in the maritime world. We've had a a number of ministers over the past decade and a half or so that I've been fortunate enough to work with. I fear sometimes that the position is used as a stepping stone by some. And Mm. to say that these ministers have been transient is a bit of an understatement. They never seem to last a terribly long time. And it also doesn't help that they have other portfolios that involve industries that are very different to ours, with different issues, different problems. And they're operated in a a totally different manner with with different commercial mechanics. You know, our, our current minister is a superb fellow. Robert Quartz is top quality fellow. He works extremely hard. He's very committed. He does his very best, but he's drawn in so many different ways, as you well understand. The aviation industry makes a lot of noise. They are great lobbyists, much better than we are in shipping, I'm afraid. So it would be tremendously useful if we could have a maritime minister that was totally dedicated to us, someone that we could take these various problems to and explain how they fit into the international, the global context. And seafarers is one of those issues. You know, you cannot be a great maritime nation without a big and quality British flag with many vessels on there that will employ British seafarers. And it's those British seafarers, remember, who will then in their second careers come into this city and add so much more value. I mean, if you just take a look at my firm, the co-global head of our shipping group, Phil Roach, is an ex-Royal Navy officer and his knowledge of the sea and how ships work and what what the practical issues are are hugely important. Much as I would like to say that I, I I really understand shipping, I may understand how to finance a ship, I may understand how to register a ship and, and deal with certain of the issues that arise in the industry, but I have no real understanding of you know the practical side of shipping, what the issues are when you're actually on board a vessel. And I think it's that's fundamentally important. And this is why I said earlier, if there are any seafarers out there who are thinking of second career, please do consider the law. No, I completely agree. I think there's no substitute for that kind of experience and promoting from within, as it were, is always the right way to go as there's only so much that we can know about the industry and the and the day to day whilst we whilst our day to day is at a desk and there's for however many years was aboard a ship doing the actual work. You touch there again on finance, which I think is really going to be key in the and I know it's a area of expertise for you is really going to shape the coming probably few decades in shipping as we face the huge challenge of of decarbonizing the industry. I wonder if you have any thoughts on on how the industry can or should tackle the need to finance these new technologies and new vessels as we look to reduce the carbon emissions from our sector. Gary, I think you've you've hit on a a real bugbear of mine. Look, I don't think I need <laughs> to tell anyone listening to the podcast Uh, Just what a pivotal time this is for the shipping and maritime industries. I I think we face two huge challenges 
at a time when there's very limited finance available for the shipping and maritime industries. I mean, the first challenge, and certainly the most important, is the environmental challenge. Uh, We've seen some short-term issues with ballast water and sulfur emissions issues, and we've seen how they've caused problems. But decarbonisation is the focus. And that isn't just a challenge for the shipping and maritime industries. It it is a challenge that that we as a a human race uh, have to succeed in. Uh, It's an endeavour where failure is simply not an option. We must decarbonise. Now, the problem we face is, is a question of how we're going to finance all of this. Now, if you if you have a look at some of the reports that have been prepared, um, there are two very good reports, one by the Energy Transition Commission and one by the University Maritime Advisory Services or UMass. Now, what they've done is they've calculated that if we if we meet or try to meet the the less ambitious targets of the IMO for 2050. And then we've just got to remember that what we're looking at here is a reduction in emissions by 50% of what they were in 2008, the cost of that decarbonisation is going to be somewhere between $1 and $1.4 trillion. If I can just repeat that, $1 to $1.4 trillion. Now, if we want to go for net zero, which I think is going to be far more likely, I think nation states and groupings of states like the EU will push for a net zero position rather than the IMO's 2050 target. And there, the cost of decarbonizing to a net zero position is around $1.9 trillion. So there's a tremendous amount of money that we're going to need just to decarbonize. Now, on top of that, I firmly believe there's another elephant in the room. Um, uh, We're not focusing on this as much as we are on decarbonization, but disruptive technologies are going to be fundamentally important to the shipping and maritime industries going forward, Gary. Um, I'm talking about things like artificial intelligence, autonomous shipping, blockchain, cyber. Now, what I would say to you is that these new technologies aren't just going to change the way we work and the way that we run our businesses, they're going to change the way we live. And it's fundamentally important that we invest in these. And we've got to be, you know, pretty certain that the United Kingdom is right up there in the development of these technologies, because first mover advantage will be fundamental. And if you're beaten to the punch, catching up will be almost impossible because of the huge amount of investment that are needed. Now, if I can sort of slightly depress everybody, The fact of the matter is that there is so little capital around for the shipping industry at this really pivotal time. If I take you back to 2007, and here I'm using numbers from Deal Logic, in 2007, which was the last year before the financial crisis hit, something in the order of 120 billion of new money was made available by banks and other financial institutions to the shipping and offshore industry. Now, this is 120 billion of new money coming into the industry in 2007. 10 years later, 2017, that 120 billion had collapsed to around 40 billion. And it's remained static ever since. You know, there have been a few ups and a few downs, but we're 66% down on where we were in money coming into our industry 
since 2007. Now, people often ask me, well, why is that? There are many reasons, and I'm sure it's a combination, but we did have the global financial crisis in 2008. The Basel III and Basel IV Accords have made it more expensive for banks and some financial institutions to lend to shipping. So when you've got limited funds available for lending, it's sometimes easier to look to those areas where you can make more profit. Some of our European banks have had US dollar funding issues. But I think another important point is that based on my personal experience, the boards of many big banks that were involved in shipping just decided to leave the market because they just took a very negative view of very highly cyclical industry. They just felt that uh, it was too uncertain and there were other things that could be done. Not a good time for raising money in our industry. You know, the next question I always ask people is, well, where are we going to get this money from? Where are the new sources of capital going to come from? And I must say, there was a time when I thought that um, private equity would be a, a huge source of money. But if one thinks about it, Gary, it's it's not really a source of capital that is suited to long-term investments in technologically uncertain investments. You know, remember, we're going into a phase where we're looking to finance new and untested technology in ships, new drivetrains, new fuels. So I don't see private equity being prepared to take that kind of risk. It's the same with the capital markets. Uh, we, we had a bit of a boom period in the early part of the last decade with a great number of flotations in the New York markets. But again, they've come to a grinding halt. And once again, I'm not sure investors, particularly professional investors uh, and hedge funds and the like, will have the appetite to take on uh, you know, technology risk. Bonds had a bit of a run in, in the beginning of the last decade. Once again, I remember in 2012, something like $20 billion worth of shipping bonds were done. But again, by 2017, that number had fallen to around $6 billion. And again, we've vacillated around that number ever since. There's a lot of activity in, in the Oslo markets, for example. There, there are a lot of numbers of deals, but the amounts that have been made available are not sufficient. You know, we're talking about very low billions and not trillions, which is where we need to get to. Yeah, I'm uh, conscious as you go through this list that one by one, we're we're writing off huge sectors of the finance market and uh, we're not leaving much left behind. Well, look, that's absolutely right. And for me as a, as a, a, a shipping finance lawyer, an asset finance lawyer, I find this very depressing. I mean, the good news is we have seen some new banks and leasing institutions come in, uh, primarily the Chinese. They've been very keen to come in and to support the industry. Are they, are they going to be prepared to make available the huge amounts that we're going to need to decarbonize and to meet the challenges that will come with the advent of new and disruptive technologies? And without wishing to be political in any way at all, Gary, is the US and the West going to be comfortable with Chinese institutions having such a great commercial control, great commercial leverage over global shipping, You know, an industry that is fundamental to global trade? I have come to the conclusion that intervention by government is inevitable if we're going to achieve decarbonisation targets and meet the challenges that we face from from new and disruptive technologies. And you know the way they can do this without pumping 
billions of taxpayers' money into the industry is to use their export credit agencies. The beauty of export credit agencies is that they guarantee up to 80% of loans that have been made available to ship owners. Now, this gives the banks and financial institutions the comfort of knowing that they've got a, a guarantee from a sovereign state, more or less, that covers 80% of what they're making available. So that makes the new technology risk and the amount to be loaned acceptable to them. It helps the ship owner tremendously because by getting a government guaranteed for their lenders, they can get much better terms and lower rates of interest. And so far as the government is concerned, it's giving its industry possibility of being a market leader in these very new and disrupted times. And you know, we, we see export credit agencies all around the world working very hard. I mean, uh, China, Exim, Korea, Exim, uh, JBIC, Sarche in Italy, Eula Hermes in Germany, Kuke, Poland, Atradius in the Netherlands. We need to get UKEF up and running on maritime in the UK. And again, that's another focus of maritime London without giving too much away. Is there any activity in that area at the moment within the UK? And do we have the right expertise here to run that kind of scheme? Well, look, the the problem that we have, and this is no fault of UKEF whatsoever, there's been very little shipping business. In fact, I can't remember the last time there was a guarantee provided by UKEF to a British ship owner for a British flagship or to a British engineering company to produce something for a British flagship. So there is a lack of expertise simply because they haven't been doing the deals. Mm. But we know from previous experience that the staff at UKEF are very expert indeed in their field. And they're market leaders in aviation, for example, with with multi-multi-billion dollar portfolios. So I'm very hopeful that UKEF could be brought up to speed very quickly. We'll soon have the report on British shipbuilding coming out. I'm very much hoping that there'll be some kind of renaissance of what was the uh, home shipbuilding scheme, whereby if somebody builds in the United Kingdom at a British yard, UKEF or another body that may be established will come in and provide guarantees to lenders, to the owners of those vessels. Absolutely. That would only serve to boost the expertise within the UK further across the whole of the maritime and shipping sectors. I mean, Gary, um, I think, one area that I, I haven't touched on is, is green financing and green bonds. There's been much talk about these, but I must say I haven't seen terribly much activity. Uh, I mean, there's something called the Green Finance Initiative, which was launched by the City of London in about 2016. And it was mandated by the British government in 2017, primarily to meet the, the UK's industrial strategy and the clean growth strategy. They have been active, and I, I, I have seen the issuing of green bonds, but I haven't seen very much at all so far as shipping is concerned. Uh, you know, banks and financial institutions have tried very hard to uh, ensure that when they lend, uh, it is to owners who are trying to decarbonize and do the right thing. Uh, we've seen the, the Poseidon principles come into effect. But, you know, e even they, notwithstanding how laudable these efforts are, uh, if you look at the most recent numbers, uh, there's been very little, if any, success in, in decarbonizing their portfolios. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, and as I say, I'm afraid I don't think that it will be that, you know, the private private commerce that's going to be the answer to this. 
I cannot see us raising the trillions that will be needed other than through some kind of government support, some kind of government assistance. And we we just need to look at this together and work out how to take it forward. And perhaps just finally, we we touched on those disruptive technologies, but are there are there any specific measures for developing and incubating these these disruptive technologies within the UK that perhaps are slightly more uh, slightly different to the ones that we need to to promote shipbuilding the flag? Well, look, again, this is another slight bugbear of mine. Um, when you look at, at at for example the Society of Maritime Industries and you look at their members. We have some of the best maritime engineering companies and some of the best minds in the world uh, when it comes to to maritime shipbuilding engineering. It, it really is quite phenomenal. But you know, we don't have you know huge industrialists as they do, for example, in the United States, in Germany, in France. On the technology side, you know, we don't have an Apple. We don't have Microsoft, for example, we simply don't have multi-billion dollar corporations that can finance some of the huge investment that's needed in developing this new and disruptive technology. And I think it's fundamentally important that government steps in and assists. Uh, You know, Maritime UK has been working very hard to achieve this. But just to give you an example, um, you know, there, there was a clean maritime competition recently. And the government, the government could only manage 20 million pounds for the whole of the UK. Now, compared to the billions and hundreds of millions that nations like the United States, city states like Singapore, Germany, um, Norway, France are putting into the uh, into these uh, research and development programs. That's very poor. And as I said earlier, Gary, I'm very concerned that. You know, if we don't take advantage of our great academic superiority in these areas and we lose first mover advantage, we will never be able to catch up. We've seen that before in many of these new and disruptive technologies. And the other great concern that I have is, you know, even when when great British institutions do come up with fantastic inventions, fantastic developments, they're often forced to sell them overseas just in order to keep going. And that, that simply cannot be right. We need to sometimes look at the national interest and ensure that the right thing is done for this nation and you know the, the continued commercial well-being of the nation, Gary. Absolutely. And I think it's uh, perhaps down to us as the media and yourselves at Maritime London to help uh, fly the flag for all the, all the great things that the maritime industry can do for the UK and um, how much work there is to be done. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again to Harry for appearing on the Maritime Podcast. 